Hi there, this is Wafa Al-Abedat. You are listening to the Women Power Podcast, a subsidiary platform to the Women Power Summit, the largest event in MENA, with the aim of empowering women and helping them achieve their absolute highest potential. Each week on the Women Power Podcast, you will hear honest, vulnerable, authentic, real conversations from inspiring women. These women will share their experiences and stories into what it takes to build a successful business and career. The podcast will share insight and inspiration and hopefully inspire action and lead change. How have you been during COVID? How have you handled this extremely strange and challenging time? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very important question to start with because I think, you know, I've been very, very lucky in that all my family um, has been, for the most part, you know, safe and healthy. And I think that's been one of the things that's allowed me to kind of focus on other work, right? Um, I think one of the very interesting things about, you know, COVID and kind of living through COVID as a young person has been that, you know, I've had to kind of kind of pivot a lot of my work to the online and digital space, right? Like so many uh, other people. And I've had to kind of do that through a youth perspective. So thinking about how can I connect with young people when we can't be together in person? And I think a lot of that work has shown me that, you know, more important than ever um, is, you know, girls' education, gender parity, these issues that we've been talking about for many years before COVID, right? Because I think, you know, amidst the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of these issues can be kind of thrown under the rug. Um, There's not a lot of focus on them. And I think that's really upsetting, right? Because the one way that we can ensure that we are prepared for future pandemics, the one way that we can build back better and stronger um, and and more justly from COVID is is by ensuring that, you know, girls' education, gender parity um, is at the forefront of our discussions. And so I think that's been one of the things that I've tried to kind of center in a lot of my discussions around COVID, but obviously, you know, I want to acknowledge that it takes a privilege to kind of be able to talk about those conversations, right? Um, And so I've been very lucky that like my family has been safe, alhamdulillah. So you were born in Cambridge, um, which is insane. Like your whole life is literally like narrated around Ivy League schools, which is really interesting. How has being in these incredible environments, and obviously now you're in Harvard as well, um which is you it's like it's the norm but like how have these incredible spaces with great thinkers and just great institutions how how has growing up in that space impacted you yeah i mean so let's start at the very beginning so i was born in cambridge uk because my mom was doing her phd there um and then we moved back to egypt when i was like two so i don't really remember kind of that beginning portion of my life grew up um in egypt until around 2013 when we moved to the u.s Um, And I would say that since then, kind of, I've had access to a lot of kind of like Ivy League-ish education and spaces. Um, And it's been interesting. I think on the one hand, it's been completely kind of transformational, right? I've I've gotten to listen to incredible leaders and activists and advocates for various issues. I've gotten to have discussions with these professors that, you know, I might, you know, never have kind of dreamed of meeting. Um, They spend their whole life studying some of these topics, Um, And I've gotten to kind of see like what, you know, spaces with resources look like. At the same time, I think that's also created a juxtaposition in my mind where I'm like, first of all, when I walk into these spaces, there's like really few people who look like me. Uh, And the people who look like me are seldom kind of the ones that are being centered in the conversation, right? And so even if there is, um, you know, Arab women present at, you know, say a forum, 
they're never kind of the ones that are at the forefront of asking the questions. They're never really the ones that are being listened to. Their voices aren't being amplified or heard or anything like that. And I think kind of walking through those spaces and being really, really aware and, and self-aware of, you know, how few people look like me and, and how few women of color there simply are um, has been a really important step in my thinking about, you know, how do I want to kind of walk through these spaces? And I think one of the things that I've tried to do is be very intentional about it um, and, and walk through those spaces like I deserve to be there because I do deserve to be there, right? And, and, and try to bring more and more people into those spaces that I'm a part of. Um, at the same time, right, I think being in those spaces um, has also kind of taught me so much about what it means to mobilize, right? I think you'll find that on a lot of college campuses, especially Ivy League college campuses, there's a lot that people don't like. There's a lot that the students are objecting to. And to be in a space where kind of the students are actively working with each other and like creating these alliances, uh, it's almost like a mini political world. And I think that's also kind of been super, super enlightening for me. It's so interesting when you call yourself a woman of color. I feel like someone's called me that recently, but because I think I'm here, I'm not the woman of color. Like everyone here looks like me. But someone was like, yeah, you're a woman of color. And I'm like, am I? And they're like, well, if you were not where you were now, you would be. And I was like, would I? Like, it was such a that's weird... That's like, super... I, that's a debate that my mom and I have uh, quite often. And it's a debate that a lot of like Arab Americans and even Middle Eastern Americans kind of have more generally. Because technically under the U.S. Census, Middle East is considered white. At the same time, there's a lot of like privilege that comes with, you know, being classified as white in the U.S. that, you know, women that look like us don't necessarily get um especially obviously when like religion plays a role right and someone's wearing a hijab for example and so kind of trying to like parse apart where the discrimination comes from it's like a whole conversation uh personally i identify as a woman of color but i also know a lot of like middle eastern women who don't and so it's kind of like an interesting conversation and i think there's a lot of like complicated history that goes behind it, yeah. First of all, maybe I'm more curious about the book. Like when you read it, were you surprised with any of the stories that were in there? Like, I never knew this. Or were you like, yeah, like, did you collaborate with her on it or like give her feedback? So by the time it came up, you're like, oh, I was, you know, I've seen it all. Like how, how was it reading about your mother from her book, Recoded, in case anybody wants to go get a copy? Yes. I mean, first of all, let me just say that reading about yourself in a book is like one of the weirdest experiences ever. <laughs> I will not sugarcoat it. I think it's just odd to go through, right, and read pages after pages of people you know, and then yourself. Um, and I remember being particularly embarrassed when a lot of my friends picked up the book, um, had her sign it, and then read about the part where like she gives birth to me. And I'm like, this is really awkward. Um, or so like what people debate about your parents. You're like, God, this is private. Like, why is everybody talking about my parents? Like being together and working things out. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think, you know, that was, yeah, that was definitely just a very odd experience. Um, but throughout kind of, you know, her writing process, I was definitely involved. She asked me a lot of questions. We had a lot of conversations about, you know, it taking shape. Uh, partly because I don't think she really, you know, had in mind, like, what would the structure look like? And we're really, really good kind of like friends and buddies. And so we kind of bounce off ideas off of each other a lot. So that was definitely one example of um, that process. And then eventually she had, you know, a pretty advanced draft of the book. Uh, which is when I first read it. And I think a lot of the stories, I was like, wait, this sounds super familiar, right? Like, I remember this happening. But I will say that there were a couple of moments where we had, like, big disagreements where I was like, no, like, I don't think it happened like this. She was like, no, like, it definitely did. And we kind of went back and forth. 
And the conclusion was, when I write my book, <laughs> those stories can go in differently. <laughs> this is her book. Um, so it was kind of like an interesting iterative process in that sense. Um, and I think there was definitely aspects, you know, of her life that she chose to be very vulnerable about in her book in a way that she hadn't necessarily been with anyone in her life, including me. And so it was kind of um, cool and like, just really interesting and powerful to kind of read about those moments um, from a very different perspective and kind of understand her in a new light, in a sense. Um, but definitely, again, reading about yourself, do not recommend. <laughs> I had like come some sort of dissociation start to happen. I was like, wait a second, especially when the memories are slightly different and from a different perspective. So it's so interesting to talk to you about this, Lena, because I, I founded a book club with... Um, Okay, let me let me say the question again. So we run a book club called Women Who Read. So uh, Rana's book, Recoded, was the last book pick. So that was interesting for me as well because I read that at, like in my own time, just like super connected with it. Then I chose it for the book club. The many perks of owning a book club, like you guys get to read what I choose. But anyways, uh, but like we had a whole discussion with like 20 other women uh, and, and, and men on the whole book so yeah like it was like a debate and, and the feedback was so insane like about like relationships and just the patriarchy and there was so much anger for you know there were some women in the group that had a background in, in, in you know um, computer sciences and talking about their experience and reflecting it back on Rana's and just like talking about change so it was such an interesting like like maybe you think it was weird reading about yourself imagine like a whole book club where it's like what did you think of their relationship you know what I mean like I think you would be like guys this is strange but it was an incredible thing I think Rana's biggest gift to a lot of the women that I felt or uh, or felt and to myself was just making like um emotional intelligence just de- like she demystified it she made it much more closer to home and she got you thinking about technology in a completely new way where maybe it was intimidating and far away and confusing it just became like oh these are just questions you can ask and then you could build stuff and experiment and you can you know you can come up with solutions to these problems um so my question to you is how has did your mother inspire you anyway to kind of follow in the same like in the same path as her just because you know you advocate for a lot of the same things women's issues maybe in different ways but also going to like great schools um i don't know what you're studying but maybe like you know did that have an influence as well on what you chose to study yeah so i think you know Definitely, she is one of my biggest role models, and I think she shaped a lot of the ways that I think about kind of going through life just in a general sense. Um, And obviously, a lot of my work around gender parity, women's rights, um, even girls' education is kind of, you know, inspired by her and a lot of the work that she does in terms of bringing more women into, you know, very male-dominated technology, science, uh, STEM spaces. And so I think that's definitely been inspired by her, but we often joke that you know, I think she she would have loved to have a daughter that was like really into STEM with her, did like computer science together. And I am not that daughter at all. Um, you could talk to me about tech and I would probably fall asleep <laughs> after a certain amount of time um, because I'm much more interested kind of in the humanities realm. So, you know, studying the Middle East historically, looking at, you know, econ, politics, um, et cetera. And so a lot of the work that I do is focused on like creating policy and thinking about policy, which was not her realm. 
Um, at the same time, I think we've, you know, recently especially come to kind of the conclusion that the two are symbiotic, right? You can't have like, you know, good technology, for example, if you don't have rules and regulations, um, you know, with regards to the ethics of AI. And so, and that's just one super specific example, but I think in our world, and especially as we kind of, you know, tackle some of the challenges in the world in the next 20, 30 years, um, those solutions have to be interdisciplinary. So maybe I can't isolate computer science as much as I have previously, right? And maybe she can't also kind of ignore the humanities as much as maybe she sometimes says she likes to do. And so I think um, one thing about us is that we've kind of, you know, worked through the differences between our fields and kind of seen you know, that there's a lot of synergy between them and there has to be a lot of synergy between them if kind of the problems that we're working on um, will ever will ever find themselves a solution. Um, you've given a TED talk or a TEDx youth talk on Muslim women. You've spoken at the United Nations. So you're really kind of active as a speaker. Um, can you tell me more about how you kind of got into the space and how do you feel when you're on stage kind of really communicating your ideas and your concepts? Yeah, so I've always been a chatterbox. Um, I absolutely love to talk and I've always loved to talk. In the sixth grade, um, I joined my school speech team. And so as part of that, we would pick, you know, a speech and a topic. Um, So I picked, I think in my sixth grade year, cultural awareness for everyone. I called it Cafe 101. That was the name of the speech. And it was a seven minute speech that I wrote, worked on, edited throughout the year um, and would deliver at various competitions. And I think I was at the age where I didn't feel like public speaking had to be scary. And so I kind of would just get up and talk. And by the time that, you know, I think stage fright or any sort of nervousness and anxiety around public speaking would set in, I'd already been public speaking for a couple of years that I didn't feel that shift as much. And I think that that's one of the things, you know, to anyone who has kids um, in particular, like, please get them started on public speaking early because it made such a big difference for me. Um, and I think, you know, public speaking and having, so, so ever since the sixth grade, up, up until my senior year of high school, which was this past year, I was on the speech team, competing on the speech team, doing various speeches, um, and really kind of learning how to articulate, you know, the problems facing the communities I care about, learning how to articulate what matters to me the most, learning how to articulate my own vulnerabilities, right, and figure out how do you share a personal story with an audience, and at the same time, make a point with it. Um, and so, having to kind of work on public speaking over such a long period of time, um, I think helps me kind of develop my public speaking skills on the one hand, but also um, really clarify, you know, what my priorities in life were, what I cared about. Um, And public speaking has now become the center of all of my life. I absolutely love it. Uh, When I'm on stage, it's kind of one of the happiest moments just because I really love, um, you know, one of my coaches used to say that you're presenting, you're giving a present. And I, and I truly believe that when you're, you know, on stage, you're really kind of providing every single one of your audience members with a whole journey, with a whole experience, especially if you're doing your job well. And so being able to do that, having the honor and privilege of talking to people and taking, you know, a couple of minutes out of their time um, and sharing kind of, you know, some of my own learning, some of my own insights, but also encouraging them to do the same um, is, yeah, is, is kind of an incredible experience for me and an honor that I wake up with every morning and I'm excited to hopefully continue doing. So Jenna, like similar to you, I love public speaking. I also get really happy on stage. I love like impact. I love people's expression knowing that I can impact them, whether it's like make them laugh. Like, cause I think like public speaking is just like, it's a performance, but you're also being yourself. It's just like, 
me being me like can make an impact like i love that idea and then just hitting people on scale whether it's a group of five or a group of a thousand people it's so powerful to just get your message across um, and invite people into your world especially if you have like a strong call of action but a lot of the times at least when it comes to like even my girlfriends you know when they get not necessarily all but like when people get an opportunity to speak in public and i guess like this is quite a famous thing like people would prefer to like die than you know speak in public like people have a real fear of public speaking more so i think with women like no, no no i'm not ready and they wouldn't put their hand up and so my question i guess is twofold one is have you felt this was more of a gender thing like you felt like women would tend to shy away from the stage versus men and a follow-up question to that is what would be like your starter toolkit to people who are like i want to kind of get on stage i have a message to share how do i say yes what do i need to do to get prepared yeah definitely um you know so i've done i've run a number of public speaking workshops for groups around the world um and a number of those have been you know young women only and i found that amongst those young women there's a much higher percentage of people who are absolutely terrified of public speaking and who feel that they do not have a message that deserves to be heard and shared on such a wide scale when that's i would argue completely you know baloney like completely on the contrary right there's there's so much that they have to say um and so we kind of worked together to figure out you know how can we get someone from point A, which is, you know, being very terrified, not thinking that their message has any validity to it, or at least not enough validity to share. Um, and point B, right, being able to actually like get on stage and, and present and feel confident in your presentation. Um, and there are obviously, you know, a lot of steps that go, go between those, but I would say one of the first steps um, is take a step back, think about what would your audience look like? Why, what is the purpose of this? And I think when you think about your audience, it's almost, your audience is almost never looking for you to fail. They want you to succeed. You'll see people in your audience like nodding their heads. They want you to succeed. And so kind of keep that framing in mind as you're going about your preparation. And then I would say, you know, one of the things that's really helped me on my public speaking journey is thinking about the message, right? When I think about, you know, girls' education, I, I say, well, advocating for girls' education can't be more important than my, you know, stage fright, right? And so kind of working to balance the two and focusing on your message and knowing that your audience is going to focus on your message more than anything else, I think is also super important. Um, and then I would say kind of once you have your ideas down, practice, 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 because that's the best way to make sure that you feel confident on stage. Um, and I think, you know, people don't quite understand what practicing looks like. Like, I remember even when I kind of first started speech, I would just read through my speech. I'd be like, yeah, like I practiced. But practicing means like getting up and doing the speech out loud, uh, putting teddy bears on your bed and, and, and giving the speech to them and pretending they're each a different person. Um, move on, you know, graduate from teddy bears and put real people there, your family members, anyone who's willing to listen to you. Um, and I think the more that you practice, the more that you're going to feel comfortable in this position of giving a speech, of having your voice heard. Um, and I think, you know, you'll find that once you're on stage, it's kind of, you know, second nature in some ways. Um, you can kind of go back to kind of some of those the, those practicing moments um, and it'll just come out of you, especially if you're nervous. And so just remembering, I think, all of those tips as you go along your preparation journey is, is, is kind of the first step towards getting you um, on stage and ready to go. So yeah, I love that. And I, and I think practicing is just also just saying yes to opportunities and then making a lot mm -hmm. of mistakes. And then, you know, everyone's like, oh my God, you're so good at it. It's like, yeah, I've said yes to absolutely every opportunity 
So like now I'm good at it after like X amount of tries. I agree with you. I don't do teddy bears though. I love that idea. I just um, practice in front of a mirror and I time mm -hmm. myself if I'm presenting something and there's a time cap. But yeah, like I think I would always try to practice a couple of times, even more so in Arabic <laughs> to be able to get like some sort of like proper impact and just to get like a great flow going. I love that. So I feel like anybody who's listening who wants to have a go at this, so say yes, be prepared, get your teddy bears in order um, and, you know, just believe that you can do it as well. You said that a high number of women, um, you know, don't, didn't feel they have they didn't have a strong enough message or and I think a lot of us just believing like I have something important to say and that's mm -hmm. enough and I should be able to communicate what I want so like I'd love to know more about your TEDx youth talk on Muslim women yeah definitely um so I gave that talk maybe three and a half years ago now um but it's still kind of one of you know the most most pivotal moments I think in my life but also kind of the most important moments in my life um, I spent almost two years kind of formulating that talk and thinking about it. I think the idea of like giving one talk about Muslim women um, came up in my freshman year of high school. I had spent almost three years at that point, four years in the U.S. and three years at my school. Um, and I had found that I was having conversations around Muslim women and dispelling stereotypes around Muslim women on a daily basis, simply because I love to tell stories. I love to share about my own experiences, but also because no one around me knew anything. Uh, I got questions like, you know, did you drive a camel to school? And I was like, first of all, I don't think camels get driven, but also absolutely not. Um, right. Uh, questions like, can your mother drive? Just questions that, you know, completely across the spectrum. Um, that kind of got at a lot of the stereotypes that I think people had around women from the Middle East um, and Muslim women more generally. Um, and I think, you know, going about telling my own story, but also sharing the experiences of other Muslim women that I knew brought me to the to, to the realization that there's just this one narrative um, that the global kind of media industry feeds us about Muslim women. And I think oftentimes that that narrative, unfortunately, can begin to, you know, get internalized by us. And I think that's kind of one of the most harmful um, effects of the media industry and, 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 you know, both traditional media, right, like newspapers, etc., but also um, non-traditional media like movies, Netflix um, as well. And so, so kind of, you know, the, the, the idea for the talk came out of this belief that the, I had so many experiences in my own life where I saw Muslim women as being, you know, the role models, um, the ideal for me to kind of reach up and emulate um, and learn from. And, and I saw them as being, you know, driven, empowered, and impassioned. And so kind of moving away from that and, and figuring out where do we go wrong and how can we create a new narrative around Muslim women that's all-encompassing because, you know, there are pockets of oppression. As there are, you know, there is a story of oppression with, with women all over the world. It's not unique to any religion. It's not unique to any uh, region, right? And, and so, but also ensuring rights that there is some oppression, but there's also people who are doing incredible things and how can we make sure that we're including them in the conversation as well and shedding light on the incredible work that they're doing. And so that was really the purpose of the talk. Um, but the feedback from the talk, I think, is one of the reasons why I continue public speaking today, because it was just incredible. And I think, you know, part of the most incredible parts of it was that there were people, you know, Americans who'd grown up uh, here in the U.S. who would come up to me and say, 
I, I'm going to look at Muslim women completely differently now. When I walk through the street and I see a hijabi, I'm not going to assume that she's oppressed because I have no idea her story. Um, and I think that transformation was one that I really cherish because I think it's so important. But then there was a completely different transformation, right, of Muslim women who would come up with come up to me and say, you know what, you're I, I have not seen some of these role models. I haven't been, um, you know, I haven't lived in a Muslim majority country, so I haven't had access to uh, some of the Muslim women that you talked about. I didn't know that Muslim women were empowered throughout history. I didn't know that they played a role. Um, how can I be like them? How can I be like you? Right. And, and how can we work together to create kind of this community of Muslim women? And so I think those two experiences are are the reasons why um, I believe that talk is still so important and still so relevant to our world. Do you ever feel like everybody around you has things figured out when it comes to their career except for you? Do you look at successful people and want to figure out how do they make a living doing what they love? Do you ever feel like what you're learning in school and university is not what you see yourself doing? Welcome to Playbook, where we're trying to change the dynamic and reinvent career progression for women. We want to be with you every step of the way as you navigate the challenges in your journey. We're building a platform that gives you a community and content that also uses the power of storytelling through shared experiences by game-changing women who've shattered the glass ceiling. Join our waiting list and be the first to know when the platform goes live. Get on get-playbook.com to sign up to our newsletter and be the first to pilot our new technology. So you're also an entrepreneur. Let's add that to your incredible CV. So you're the founder of J Strategy. It's a speaking bureau and media agency dedicated to amplifying the work of young women. Tell me more about what made you want to start a business. At you know, and how old were you when you started this, and like, what's your role in it? Yeah, so I was 17 when I started J Strategy, um, and I, you know, it came out of my own personal experience again. So I had been public speaking now for years and I'd been invited to speak at many panels on many podcasts um, at many events and I think the culmination and the moment I was most excited for was being on this UN panel in um, the fall of 2020 so right amidst the COVID-19 pandemic I got onto the panel and I felt like I was home uh, because there were you know the moderator was a woman of color uh, the two other panelists were women of color they were across ages across kind of fields and it just seemed like such an inclusive, like enlightening conversation. They were bringing up communities that none of the panels that I'd previously been on even like mentioned or even thought of. They weren't on our radar uh, because we didn't have members of those communities present at the table. It was that simple. But for me, it seemed transformational in the sense that I just there was just no other conversation um, like that UN panel that I'd had. And so I spent that night, you know, being super excited, being like, go UN, and looking through the UN event list and finding our panel was the only diverse panel. Uh, the rest were all, you know, the same old characters. Um, and that was disappointing to me because I think, you know, conversations where you're bringing young women especially to the table are incredibly valuable. And the only way to solve some of the most pressing issues of our time, like climate change, like girls' education, um, even like bettering, you know, various countries' economy is by including young women at the table, since they're often, you know, also disproportionately impacted by some of these issues that we're talking about. And so that's what really inspired me to start J Strategy, um, which 
you know, has signed on 18 young women um, speakers, you know, as of right now that I work with kind of develop their own stories, develop their own pitches, but also I pitch them uh, to podcasts, events, companies um, all over the world so that they can get, you know, some of some of that stage space uh, and soak up, I think, so much of what you learn on panels and, and in these spaces. Um, and I think, you know, I my, my hope for J-Strategy going forward so I'm currently leading J strategy um and and we've kind of you know signed on a couple of people to help me do so but my hope is that it continues to grow and continues to you know advocate for these young women um that often are not included in traditionally um male white dominated spaces of power so what is your business model like it's it's I as somebody who's a serial entrepreneur I've started so many things some of them out of like passion, some of them because I saw the opportunity, but you don't always get to monetize what you want to do or monetizing is tough. Like you're trying to find product market fit. You're just like, is this something people are willing to pay for? So you've made some very strategic decisions. You are, you've built a speaker bureau for young women. I've never heard of anybody doing that. And it's so interesting because usually you get like, older people with experience right and like they're all very specific like they have like a bunch of experience based on topics but you're like it doesn't really like it doesn't matter what age you are like we need it we need a seat on the table we need to have you know representation I guess it also comes from a pain point that you have gone through and probably working with a bunch of agents and you probably are like I could do this or I could do this better um, but tell me more about how you've monetized this or is this something that you're just testing out right now? Yeah, so it's definitely in the testing stage. So any advice you have would be very much appreciated. Um, I think, so currently kind of the model is that it's a nonprofit organization. Um, and so any money that JStrategy receives goes into a stipend fund um, to pay, you know, some of our speakers for their time if they're not necessarily getting paid because some of the companies that have reached out or some of the panels that have reached out just don't have the capacity to do that. Uh, to pay them at the time um and 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 then right any money that we make on top of that um goes directly to the speakers right so if a, a speaker gets paid for their engagement um that goes to them and they can choose to donate it uh to the stipend fund which some have chosen to do right um and again i think it goes back to this idea of like women supporting women um everyone kind of wants to be part of this network and contribute to other people's successes um and realizing that there are still unfortunately um, you know, smaller nonprofits that really want to have this speaker and think the speaker would be a great way to like help them fundraise, for example, but don't necessarily have the money to pay for them. Um, so that's the model right now. But again, any advice that you have would be definitely welcome. <laughs> so Jenna, I love what you're doing. Like I just, I definitely see the business potential here for sure. And I think that this, you know, this is the time for women now, especially at least in our, in our region, I think globally as well, just like with this, of like a women's movement happening, especially in this part of the world with like, Saudi like through revolutionizing what they're doing and just catching up with the rest of the world so I feel like what you're doing is so incredible for potential clients to connect with um, and for you to kind of offer that service and to be able to make those connections but also it seems like you're doing a lot of work on the back end to prepare these amazing women to like get to that speaking or to that specific role I wanted to ask you how you pick your speakers I believe you have about 18 I don't know if that number has increased uh, but um, how do you select the people that you want to represent? Yeah, so a lot of the kind of initial round of speakers came from my own personal connections and the kind of young women that I'd be in, I'd you know been introduced to over the past couple of years. 
Um, and I've kind of, you know, some of them, we'd been on panels together and felt, you know, some of the same, like, disillusionment being there. At the same time, others I'd kind of watched from afar and admired and learned from, um, especially on Instagram. And so I reached out actively to the first 18 speakers um, to sign them on. But as Strategy looks to, you know, grow and develop, um, you know, any speakers who want to get involved should definitely reach out to me. Um, I'm hoping in the future that we have kind of two stages, right? So speakers who are already ready to go and have, you know, their package pitches and, and, and talk tracks all set. And they're the ones that we're kind of pitching to various companies and, and spaces. And, you know, another cohort of girls um, who I'm working with to do that development and to even practice their public speaking skills. And so that you may not necessarily feel um, like you can get on a podcast right now and, and do a great job. But you have a message that deserves to be shared and you believe in that message and we can work with you to develop that message. Awesome. So anyone can connect with you to not only just understand, like, I guess, yeah, it seems like you customize experiences and packages to corporates. I guess you can curate and choose from your speaker speaker list. But even if you haven't signed on with somebody, but you would have access to their network, I'm sure you could facilitate those opportunities as well. Definitely. That's amazing. My other question to you is you have a podcast, which is so exciting. Um, so tell me more about Untextbook Podcast. I'd love to know why you started it and who you've met so far. Yeah, so Untextbooked um, really began in you know, April of 2020. So right, you know, when much of the world was going under lockdown. Um, And it was started by me and three other friends who live across the US who, you know, we were all talking, we had so much free time on our hands. And we felt that so many other young people had free time on their hands. And we think about how can we make impact um, in the spaces that we're a part of. And so kind of doing some reflection on our own um, past and histories we identified history as being something that we were all incredibly passionate about, um, but we felt very excluded from our history classrooms in particular. And so thinking about, you know, the way in which we teach history um, in a global sense even was was really disheartening. So I know like growing up in Egypt, um, I almost never learned about Egyptian women in my in my classes. Like that was never a part of our tarikh. Like it was literally just, we started with ancient Egypt and even ancient Egypt, like, the pharaonic period, maybe some women and some mention of women there. Um, but as, you know, we got older and we kind of moved towards modern Egypt, there were a ton of, you know, incredible modern Egyptian women that we could have been learning about, but we simply weren't. Um, and that was kind of, you know, definitely a similar experience here in the West where I never, we never talked about any Muslim women in class. We never talked about any Middle Eastern women in class. If we even talked about women in class, it was often as victims um, of the actions of males. And so kind of thinking about those power dynamics and thinking about um, that need was what inspired me and these two other um, teenagers really to kind of start this podcast. And so the idea of Untextbook is that it's literally kind of deconstructing history and the way that we learn history to be more inclusive and more um, justice focused. And so we connected, we had an application process that was quite rigorous where we connected, um, I think something like 17 teens for the first uh, season of Untextbook who all, you know, eventually, you know, we raised money, we got uh, training from some of the biggest kind of podcast agencies in the world, like PRX. um, And we worked with them and our producers um, to connect, you know, every single teenager with a historian of their choice, 
um, and they read kind of the book that, that they were interested in. And usually, you know, the history topic that they chose had some sort of personal connection to them, which I think was also a very um, neat aspect of the whole project. And then they would interview that historian um, with, you know, a very intentional focus on how can you make this history accessible to more young people? Because often, you know, history and any sort of academia is rooted in so many big words and vocabulary and jargon that no one can really infiltrate. And so it's how can you make this history just normal? It's every day. It's right. It, that's the whole point of history that we're all learning, not just like, you know, a group of people in this ivory tower. And so Antexic has been, I think, more of a success than than we had ever imagined. It's been, um, you know, one of my wildest dreams. Um, we ended up raising a lot of money for the first season, um, and and thus, you know, started a second season this past spring. That's that's almost all out right now. You can find it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, um, etc. But I think what's been truly incredible has been watching our teens um, talk to these historians and discover, you know, aspects of their history that have helped empower them that they'd never known before. So we had someone kind of study Native American two-spirits. We would had someone else study um, Iranian, you know, the Iranian female experience um, and the Iranian experience in terms of LGBTQ rights. There's just been a whole spectrum um, of people choosing to do topics. And I think that's been really amazing to watch develop. So Jenna, I think one of your superpowers, and, and this is usually a question I ask at the end, but like you incredibly like, I think you have a very strong personal mission statement, but you're also very much, and to say this in like in the most authentic way, like you're, you're phenomenal with branding your work and for promoting what you do. And I guess like it kind of ties in with you being a, a great public speaker, but also having your podcast and like I'm gonna run through your CV like in a few moments because you've done so much and you're still so incredibly young. Looking back at where I was at your age, I was definitely hungry, but there were no avenues or platforms to be able to like, like there was no Instagram and no podcasts and just, you know, it was very old school. But I feel like what drives you so much to share, to share, to share what you do and to also just kind of, use different channels and and media opportunities to like promote your initiatives and then as a follow-up to that how can mothers get their girls to utilize their early years to just build strong foundations for the future just like you know how do you get that drive given to like a 17 year old who's like I'm just gonna go to school and hang out with my friends and you're there like yeah we're shooting a podcast and we got grants for it and you know I'm public speaking and I'm training people to public speak how do you kind of cultivate that in someone yeah I mean I think you know from a very young age I think a lot of the adult figures in my life instilled in me like three main values and I think my parents both of them are the center of that so this you know lifelong learning so this value of like constantly learning constantly being hungry to learn and 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 kind of experience learning I remember even in car rides like we would play like the country's game and sometimes I'd be like you guys I just want to sit here in the car and like sleep and they'd be like no 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 we have to do it and so I think you know just making learning a kind of a central central focus focus of your lives that would be the first thing um, the other value that they, they, they instilled in me at a young age was global citizenship. So the idea that, you know, we're all global citizens of the world and we all have, you know, a responsibility to give back to the world in some capacity. 
Um, and I think that really, you know, connected to the last one, which was how are you going to serve the communities that you care about? And I think that's one that's, you know, especially um, clarified the more when we moved to the U.S., right? So kind of looking at the disparities between some of the spaces that I was in and some of the spaces that I'd been in or witnessed in Egypt. And I was like, wait a second, there's something so wrong here, right? Like we're, my friends and I are talking about like, buying, I don't know, like, who knows what. And at the same time, I know that there are girls who with that same money could go to school and have completely uh, different lives because of it. And so I think just being reflective about those three values, um, because in many ways, they've shaped my life and my mission statement. And I don't think, you know, I've only recently found ways to articulate my mission statement. Um, so, so I think one of kind of my vision going forward and, and something and a phrase that I'll use often is that I seek to uncover what I know each girl possesses, right? Which is her vision and voice. And that's very true. And I think it's been true for most of my life, but I didn't necessarily have the words and the vocabulary needed to say it that succinctly and say that concisely, but it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, it's not about, you know, how you're presenting it to the world. It's about what are you doing? And I think, um, I would really encourage, you know, anyone listening into this to take a step back uh, and look at the communities that they're a part of, the communities that hopefully you have some kind of love for, right? And and see, identify what are the problems that are facing my immediate community and how can I play a role in solving them? And I think it's it's that simple, right? It's so easy to get overwhelmed by so many of the issues that, that we talk about today, whether it is gender parity, whether it is girls' education, whether it is climate change. Um, whatever it is, it, it's it's very easy to get overwhelmed because there are so many out there and it can seem like, you know, progress isn't being made. Uh, but in your own community, how are those issues playing out in your own community? What impact can you have? And I think asking your children that from a young age um, can really kind of, you know, help them think about their role in life as active agents and agents of change. Um, and I think that's what you know, inspired me. My very first project was in the seventh grade. So I was maybe like 14 or 15 at the time. Um, and I, you know, we, we had a school project and I researched girls' education and I researched girls' education around the world, but I came across some of these statistics about girls' education in Egypt. And so I did, you know, some searching online for an organization that works on girls' education in Egypt. And there it was, Heya Masr, um, which is an incredible organization, by the way, that everyone should check out, but that works with young women in the slums of Cairo um, to develop their leadership skills, to develop, you know, their nutritional literacy, um, train them against sexual harassment, but also encourage them to stay in school and giving them the tools to do that. And so, you know, I was going to Egypt anyways to visit family in a couple of months. So I connected, just literally cold emailed um, the CEO who got back to me, right, and was very excited to collaborate and said, yeah, you can do whatever you want. We need more money. We need more, you know, identified the things that they needed. And I thought, how can I help? Um, and that's when, when I went to Egypt, um, we filmed basically a quick, you know, two minute clip um, that ended up being the trailer for an Indiegogo fundraising campaign um, that raised, I think, $6,500 at the end. And, you know, that money came from a, my family, but also, you know, a lot of, <laughs> to be honest, but also a lot of friends and community members um, that I developed here in the U.S. that said, wait a second, you know, this girl is part of our community, but she's bringing up this issue that's part of, you know, the people that she cares about and the communities that she cares about. And we now feel an affinity to that community and a responsibility to give back. Um, and that's eventually what happened. And so, again, I think the premise is think about the communities you care about, think about what you can do to contribute to them 
what you can do to solve some of their, the issues that they're facing um, and use those guiding principles to empower you to create that change. It's no secret that over and over again, we're constantly getting stuck in our careers, which is probably why you're listening to this podcast. You could be stuck or demotivated or uninspired and you don't know who to go to for questions or for connections or someone who's been there, done that, which is why we're building an exciting platform called Playbook. Playbook uses the power of storytelling by game-changing women to help you hack your life, both personally and professionally. We're building a resourceful community where you can find the answers to all your questions from mentors and diverse women that are all trying to figure out the ins and outs of their careers. You can be a part of our story from the very beginning and create and build your legacy with us by becoming a founding member. For a one-time fee of $500, you get a bunch of perks, such as lifetime access to our platform, an official founding member certificate that you can share on LinkedIn, and a testimonial for your LinkedIn page plus 20 scholarships in your name to girls and women from different parts of the world who unfortunately don't have access to the education they need. Check out our website, www.getplaybook.com to learn more about how you can be a founding member of our platform. So Jenna, I had a bit of an aha moment when you were talking. I think the most valuable thing you've expressed that I can take away from this to me is um, the questions I ask myself, which is what is my personal mission statement? I, I think I asked myself that question for, actually, I was in an organization that asked me that question, which is called Vital Voices. And at first I was like, my business mission statement is, and they're like, no, 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 you're per- like, why are you here on this earth? What are you here to do? And I'm like, oh my God, like I'm 30. And like someone asked me that question for the first time in my life. Mm-hmm. So like you mentioned something really interesting and exciting, which is at a very early age, you've defined your personal values and your personal mission. So everything else possibly can like you're able to really resonate with certain causes and projects and make those choices because you're like, is this aligned with me? So you're asking yourself these incredible questions at a very early age and then curating your entire life's decisions based on those fundamentals and I don't think we ask ourselves the, I don't think anybody knows like I think people ask like what should I do or where should I work or what should I do after college right or what should I study but that's that's not the questions it's the ones that you're the, the answers that you're giving which is like these are my personal values this is my three core values this is where they've come from and then this is what I feel drives me and you kind of go all in into like the projects that you have immersed yourself in so that was such a big aha moment I really hope that if people do get the opportunity to ask themselves these questions to take like a step back like you said and and ask yourself this stuff and and kind of reposition your like just look at re-look at revisit your career and your life based on those choices um you know you do a lot you work a lot you know what I mean I know you're young and you said that you did some incredible work um you know for I'm just going to mention a few things here so for your 17th birthday you hosted a virtual event 17 for 17 you advocated for girls education you just talked about kind of like your crowdsourced thing that you just did um and then you're also part of Chegg's 50 student prize finalists and Arab America's 20 under 20 what do you do for fun when you're not doing all this stuff (laughs) So much, <laughs> so much. Um, so I love to bake. 
And that's been one of the things that's kind of like grounded me, especially throughout COVID, being able to kind of go to the kitchen, turn everything off, blast some music. Um, sometimes even Fidu's. My mother's like, what, what's wrong with you? You're 17 or 18. I'm an old soul, <laughs> mother. I'm an old soul. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and bake. Um, so that's definitely one thing. I love hanging out with my friends. I love shopping way too much than is good for me. Um, and I also um, have a passion for kind of playing squash and playing the harp. And those are two things that I've, you know, have done for years now. So I've, I started playing the harp when I was like eight. And it's been something that like, unfortunately I've had less and less time to do as time has gone on and at the same time it's something that like when I go to it I feel like it's you know centering me um and so I think finding those things in your life it doesn't have to be as complicated as the harp that was (laughs) Jenna I think you're the first harp player on this podcast oh (laughs) um yeah but I think yeah there's I, I try to be very very again intentional about finding time for things that are fun uh, because you can't, I, I'm sure someone said this on the podcast before, but you can't, you know, you can't give if you don't have anything to give. Um, and so, you know, taking care of my own mental health, which includes having fun and also just having fun for the sake of having fun, because, you know, sometimes you just need, you just need that time uh, to, to chill out. <laughs> so I want to talk a bit about identity. I know from your story, at least through your um, mom's book, that you obviously grew up in the US. Um, that's where she did her PhD and then ended up working there and just starting all her different organizations. Um, but obviously you're still connected to Egypt because that's also where you're from. Um, you're very close to your grandmother, just based off of the content that I see. You guys are really close. Do you, like, how is it, like, Egypt and the US are so different from each other. Like it's like on the far end of the spectrum. How are you from an identity perspective? So when you go to Egypt, are you like, oh yeah, I'm totally Egyptian. And like, do you get it? And, or, you know, like, or do you feel like you're more American than Egyptian or does it even matter? Like, how do you kind of make sure that you retain both cultures, I guess, or both identities? No, no, yeah. So we moved from Egypt to the U.S. when I was 10 years old, I want to say. And at the time, I was like, no, 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 I'm never going to be American. Like, I'm always going to be Egyptian. Like, it's just always going to be Egyptian. So every time, and and we, you know, have the opportunity to go back quite often because my parents are divorced, we have to visit my dad, but we have also a lot of family um, in Egypt. And so every time we'd go back, especially for the first, like, two years, I'd be like, no, no, this is, I'm still Egyptian, I'm still Egyptian. Um, but then I remember visiting my friends and having them say, oh my goodness, your accent has gotten so American. Um, oh my gosh, like you say all these American words. Oh my gosh, like you have like this pencil case from Target. And like all of these like really specific things that I never considered made me non-Egyptian suddenly made me very American uh, to my Egyptian friends and even family, honestly. And that was like a crisis moment, I think, in my life where I was like, wait a second, like what? Now what? Now what? I was like, mom, take me back. Like, I don't. Yeah, I don't. Exactly. Um, but I think, you know, in, on the one hand, there's no going back. Like, Even if we were to move back, there's just, you know, the experiences and where you live just impacts who you are no matter what. And no matter, you know, if you're welcoming with open arms or if you're like me and you're like, no, 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 this can't be happening. Um, and I think since then, I've kind of come to the realization that it's okay to be both Egyptian and American and use aspects of those experiences um, in varying ratios, show up to them, you know, it, it, with, with, with them being, you know, varyingly pronounced 
Um, but kind of see myself as a synergy of the two and not necessarily as presenting as either Egyptian or American because I don't think that you can any longer at least parse out like which parts of me are Egyptian and which parts of me are American. They're very much interconnected um, and they both shape, you know, the way I in which I walk through this world. And so when I go back to Egypt, you know, I definitely feel slightly more Egyptian in some ways. And at the same time, when I'm here, I feel more Egyptian in other ways because I'm like the sole Egyptian representative. And so there's kind of like a dichotomy there that doesn't always make sense. Um, and I and I think kind of working through my own personal questions around identity has allowed me to become a more confident and a more at peace person. I think there was, you know, there's a long time where I felt like, no, like to be Egyptian, I had to go like renew my Egyptianness on like every possible break. Like I had to go back and I had to feel like Turab must right the dust in the air. Um, but like that's not true. Like you're Egyptian no matter what because you're Egyptian, and you're American no matter what because you identify as American. And so there's no need to kind of define them in neat boxes. I don't need to listen to Umm Kulthum to be Egyptian. Like you don't need to listen to like Taylor Swift to be American. Like that's not a thing. Um, and so just coming to accept that has been a big, big process for me. How do you deal with criticism if you like go to Egypt and everyone's like, you're so American, like you've lost it. Or like, I'm sure you get all these like, and people, people probably do it out of like love. Like they don't, it's not intentional, but just like, your accent's really weird or like judgment or like you've left versus like even being in the States where it's like, you're, you know, that's not like how we do things here. So how do you deal with like, yeah, people saying like, you don't listen to Kuthum and you call yourself an Egyptian and you're like, what does that have to do with it? So how do you deal with the noise? I mean, in the beginning, I honestly like didn't deal with it well, I would say. So it's definitely a process. Like in the beginning, I would go home. Someone made it, told me that like, my Arabi's broken or whatever. And I would literally just go home and sit and cry. And there was no like working through it per se. Um, but I think I've grown up in the sense that I really embrace those comments now. I'm like, yeah, like why is my Arabic broken? Because I've lived away from Egypt for X amount of years. And, you know, my parents and a lot of Egyptian society doesn't place a value on Arabic as we should. So even growing up, my Arabic, you could say, was broken, right? And so I think, like, just embracing kind of some of those conversations. Um, in the U.S., it's also really similar. Like, why do I talk so much about diversity, equity, and inclusion? Because, you know, I've been at the brunt of, like, a lot of these policies that aren't just and aren't fair um, and target, you know, people of color. And so I think, like, just showing up to your spaces unapologetically like who you are and recognizing that yes like everything's not perfect I'm not a perfect Egyptian I'm not a perfect American because I'm never going to be perfect um but it's not about that it's about like showing up as who I am and being proud of that um and proud of all the imperfections that that brings um and I think yeah that I, I probably you know it would be an oversimplification to say that I'll never go home and cry um about one of these comments again because I'm sure I will Um, But just learning to embrace the two and learning to embrace those moments and tackle them like head on, um, I think is super important. So you're about to start your freshman year at Harvard College. And, you know, you this is so exciting, I think, because you've already done and achieved so much and you've been, you know, curating and working and collaborating on different projects. Like, I feel like a lot of people would start the journey you're on now but you've started it much earlier and you've started kind of the setting stones of what's to come so if I could ask you what are some of your goals for the next couple of years while you're at school what would you want to achieve 
and I feel like you're really organized, so you have some sort of plan in place on what you'd <laughs> want to do, other than obviously like getting great grades and just embracing student life. But what are some personal goals or things that you want to achieve in the next couple of years? Yeah, so I'm actually, I think this is like almost a three month mark for being at Harvard. Um, so I kind of moved in in the beginning of the year and that was, you know, a crazy experience with so much going on. Um, but it's also been, you know, definitely time of reflection, especially over the summer, thinking about what are my goals? Where do I want to emerge after like four years here? Um, and, and I think my takeaway have been, you know, that first of all, I really wanted to go into this experience with an open mind and learn as much as possible and kind of dabble in as many kind of areas as possible. Um, you know, I'm very interested in Middle Eastern studies. I'm very interested in gender studies. I'm very interested um, in global health and questions of global health. And I kind of know that my interests are there. At the same time, I do want to give myself the opportunity and I've tried to like force myself to give myself the opportunity uh, to try on new things, right? And, and to try out new things. And that's definitely been one goal, just, you know, being open-minded and trying new things out. Um, another has been, you know, continuing a lot of the work that I do. And so I think it's really easy that when you're transitioning into a new stage of your life to kind of let go, and it's important to let go of some things, right? But to let go of the work that makes you happiest. And so one of my goals has been to continue working on J strategy, right? And intentionally setting out, uh, you know, even if it's just an hour per day, or a couple of hours per week to work on J-Strategy and dedicate myself to it, um, as well as dedicate myself to a lot of the other things that I do. And so making sure that I'm blocking out time for that um, has definitely been a goal and a talent at the same time. Um, and then otherwise, it's been connecting with as many people as possible. So just getting to know as many people as possible. And I think really taking advantage of all the opportunities that Harvard has to offer. And I think Harvard is, you know, an incredible place and I'm very privileged to be there and that there's literally something going on all the time there are speakers you know who, who come all the time um and there's opportunities that you're surrounded by and it can be very easy to kind of let your let let them pass you by um but my goal is to really take advantage of as many of those opportunities as possible and use them to serve the communities I care about right so that it's not just me soaking up all this information, but it's like, how can I translate this information that I'm learning here? How can I bring some of these resources um, to the communities that I've been serving for a lot of my life? I love how purposeful you are and mindful of kind of where you want to put your time and energy. I feel like everything that you do has an underlying theme or is connected to your purpose or your mission or your values. So I feel like, you know, you're quite aware of prioritizing your time and just like listening to what gets you excited and, and driven um my last question which i love to end all my podcast episodes with is what do you feel is your superpower and i cheated a little bit earlier by saying i think your superpower is which i don't usually do but i i would love to know what you think is your superpower yeah so this i think my answer would go back to the identity question um but i think i've come to see my superpower as being a bridge of kind um, and I would say I'm a bridge in the sense that I'm a very social person and can bring a lot of people together. Um, today is actually Thanksgiving here in the U.S. when we're recording this podcast. And I have something like 20 of my friends, actually acquaintances from Harvard who are staying on campus, many of them Arabs who can't go home for this small break coming over. And I don't even know a lot of them, but they kind of just need somewhere to go. And I'm like, why not? And so kind of being a bridge to different communities and 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 
I think that's kind of one area. But I also see myself as a bridge between kind of, you know, the Egyptian communities that I'm a part of and the American communities that are part of. Um, one can even say like East and West in some ways. And I think, you know, as oversimplified as that is, I think there's a lot to be said for um, the way in which, you know, I can bring people together and I've used that as my superpower um, to create change and to mobilize communities and to mobilize people and work on campaigns um, that inspire more people. And I think it's that kind of like ripple effect um, that I think being a bridge has allowed me um, to kind of instill it and, and to, to see come true. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening to an episode of the Women Power Podcast. And thank you for downloading and streaming our podcast every week. If you love what you've heard, tag us on Instagram and follow the Women Power Podcast and Women Power Summit account for more information on our next episode. Please leave a rating review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps other women discover the show. That's it from me. See you next week.